time travelers, and welcome back to another episode of Biblical Time Machine. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am a journalist, and I am here with my co-host, the amazing Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. And today, we are going to talk all about one story. One story (laughs) that shows up in one gospel, but it is so powerful and so beloved that I'm sure all of our listeners know it. The the shorthand is it's usually called the woman taken in adultery. I, I've never understood. Helen, why is she taken in adultery? Do you, do you know why that word is chosen? <laughs> Take it rather than caught. Right. Yeah, you'd think it would be caught, wouldn't you? Right. I mean, the idea is caught red-handed. Um, and somehow, yeah, she gets taken before Jesus. But what happens to the, the man? Uh-huh. That's what I always want to know. Where does he go? Clearly, he gets away with it, but uh, yeah, she's taken and brought to Jesus. So, um, I mean, it, it, like you say, it's just in one gospel, but it's there's a huge backstory to mm-hmm. it. You know, it's it's got this whole history, kind of the biography of the of of the story. Um, so that's what we're going to be looking at today. This this great sort of backstory of of, of where it comes from mm-hmm. and why it pops up in different places. So we have a, a wonderful guest, uh, Jennifer Knutst. She is a professor of religious studies at Duke University. I, I try to get as many. I went to Duke, so I try to get as many people <laughs> from Duke as possible because they give me a refund on my tuition. Every time I have one of the guests, I get $6 back from uh, <laughs> the billions of dollars that my poor parents had to pay for me to go there. But Jennifer Knutst... Um, she wrote a book with another scholar named Tommy Wasserman, and, and their book is called To Cast the First Stone, The Transmission of a Gospel Story. So that that phrase, you know, who we kind of paraphrase it as kind of whoever among you, you know, is sinless can cast the first stone, can be the first one to, to punish this woman. It's a very famous phrase. And like you said, her and, and Tommy, Jennifer and Tommy, traced back the history of the story where it first showed up where it didn't show up which Mm. is kind of the big question why is it not included in some of the earliest uh manuscripts of of the gospel of john and 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 they have some intriguing theories so um, it's a great detective story isn't it it? it's like a literary detective story Mm. and and we have some some pretty good theories as to as to what happened so well before we get to the conversation i just wanted to thank all the members of the time travelers club those are the folks who have subscribed to the podcast and give us some money every month to to support what we do here thank you so much and in return they get all sorts of perks they can listen to extras from episodes they can listen to entire extra episodes which we're going to be posting soon and they also might get their names shouted out on the air like this Allison Dillon thank you Allison for being a member of the Time Travelers Club Allison sent Helen and I a really nice note the other day and made us feel all warm and fuzzy so thanks Allison thanks to the other members of the Time Travelers Club and if you want to join them just go to the episode description below and click on the link now let's get to our conversation with Jennifer Knutst about the woman taken in adultery Well, hello, Jennifer Knust, and welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Well, thank you. I'm so honored to be here. <laughs> honored. That's that's very nice. I'm honored <laughs> that you said that you're honored. We're all we're all very honored. Well, I am honored. Why not? Um, I'm hanging out with two awesome people. Oh, that's <laughs> <you>. so. 
So I, I, I want, I'm, I'm sure our listeners are familiar with the story that we're talking about today. But if, if you wouldn't mind giving us, you know, what, what, how, how is the story of the, of the woman taken into adultery kind of usually told and translated in modern versions of, of the Gospel of John? How, how does it go? So a woman is brought before Jesus by some leaders. Um, sometimes they're called scribes and Pharisees. Some in the Codex Bese, they're called the Jews, but let's just call them some leaders of the community, bring a woman and say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the in very active adultery in the law of Moses. It says we should stone such women. What do you say? And rather than replying, Jesus bends down and um, writes or scribbles something on the ground. and. Um, the men are still standing there and they look up or he, Jesus looks up and says, well, you know, whoever's without sin, you know, throw the first stone. And then they leave one by one while Jesus is on, bending down still. And then he looks up and he says to the woman, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And he says, um, go and sin no more. That's sort of the basic that's plot the line. There's a lot of other details that different versions put in, but that's like the basic thing. You, you know, you got to have Jesus writing on the ground. You got to have a contest between um, one set of leaders in Jesus around interpretation of Mosaic law. And you've got to have the woman say, um, you know, no one, Lord, and Jesus to say, go and sin no more. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I personally find the story to be very powerful. I mean, I, I assume that, that you probably feel the same way. I mean, why, why do you think this story has resonated so much with, with Christians, any readers of the new Testament, over all these centuries, it has been interpreted and reinterpreted and it features in art and all these things. Why, why does it have that staying power? Well, I think one of the reasons it has so much staying power is because it has so many gaps. Like there's so many details that are left open that readers are, or listeners are invited to fill in. Hmm. What did Jesus write on the ground? <laughs> Who is this woman? What did she do? Actually, um, I think those questions have, or why did the, why did the men leave? You know, did they, were they convicted of their sin and they felt bad or were they just, I mean, what, what, so the, so there's so many questions that the story raises that, that it doesn't answer. Hmm. And those kinds of stories that raise questions that don't have answers are wonderful in terms of exercising readers' imaginations about hmm. what's possible. So I think that's one important reason why the story has been so um, resonant over time. And I think another reason, and often, um, this comes up in interpretations across the board throughout history is the example of Jesus showing mercy. Yeah. Um, this, it seems like the basic logic of the story is if Jesus could forgive even this woman, mm. Jesus could forgive anyone. Yeah. And these kinds of examples of Jesus being extremely merciful are well loved throughout the Christian tradition. And it's of course not the only example of this, but it's one that's particularly well-loved over time. In terms of my own reaction to the story, I think I also loved it when I started the project, but the more I thought about it, the more I didn't like it. Mm. Is that wrong? I mean, I, I just don't like the fact that the woman is silent mm. and that she's just a ground upon which Jesus and these leaders discuss the question of Mosaic law and how it to be, should be interpreted. I as women, we are so often the ground upon which men decide what laws there should be on the books. And I don't find that to be a particularly life-giving position to have in the world. Mm. So um, as much as I want to believe or, or embrace a God who is all merciful, 
the fact that the men who are making the decisions about what mercy is and what justice is in this story is a problem, I think. Mm. And I would like to see that. And there's no sign of the man that she's committing adultery with either. Exactly. Exactly. That's um, right. And as you know, Helen, that's actually not okay. Like legally speaking, if we were really going to, you know, accuse the woman of adultery, we need, and you know, and we caught her in the very act. Mm her partner should be there yeah. that according to mosaic law. So that, so that already the mosaic law is being violated in the context mm. of the story, even though that remains unmentioned in the story as it comes down to us. Mm. But that's such a powerful, powerful saying of Jesus though too, isn't it? I mean, whoever's without sin cast the first stone. I mean, it's one of those things that's just come into, all, you know, everyday life as a par- uh, you know, one of those kind of a proverb, um, even if people have forgotten the original setting for it. Oh, I know. I, I agree. That is a terrific saying. I completely love that saying. And you're absolutely right. It, I mean, that's, it appears everywhere. I, I start to, to cast the first stone with Tommy. Um, it's in this awesome Seamus Haney poem, which you probably know from his bog poems. No, um, I don't. Around. No. Yeah. It's, um, he, he refers to it. Um, he refers to the um, Danish woman ca- in, that they found in the bog who, um, you know, was mur- you know, killed or probably in some kind of communal process. He connects her, that body to the women tarred and feathered for fraternizing with British old- soldiers during the troubles. And oh. you have to know that the story really well to get that's what he's doing. But precisely it's this question of how judgy are you going to be and how forgiving are you going to be? And who do you think you are to make these kinds of judgments mm-hmm. anyway? Well, so yeah, so this is obviously this, this powerful story that has rung down through the centuries, but it only appears in one of the Gospels, right? I mean, is that, is it weird? Is it is it unusual in, in the New Testament for, you know, a story that has become so central to really only appear once, or does that happen a lot? Well, it certainly happens with other famous stories, primarily the infancy narrative, sure. right? So I don't know about you, but, you know, I grew up with um, Christmas pageants that have shepherds and magi. And <laughs> we all do. <did>. <laughs> yeah, right. So like the shepherds are only in Luke and the magi are only in Matthew. So it's not unusual for stories that are really well loved to be specific to one gospel, I think. Um, you know, Helen knows as much about this as I do, but I mean, I don't think that part is un- unusual. Um, one thing that's worth noting is that the story of the woman taken in adultery is also placed in the gospel of Luke in a set of, um, gospels that are associated gospel books associated with, um, Southern Italy that probably were copied from an eighth century exemplar. Um, there used to be in, maybe there still is, I think it's wrong. So it should, people should get over it, but there used to be a theory that this story was originally in Luke and then somehow fell out. I think that's wrong. I mean, for a lot of reasons that are probably too detailed to go into for a podcast, I think what happened was the story got brought into Luke from a lectionary. And what, uh, what um, are yeah, what are lectionaries? Lectionaries are um, gospels that are rearranged so that they're the readings for the for the day or for the week, mm. right? So, so um, in the Greek Orthodox tradition, the reading for Pentecost jumped from. John 752 to John 812, so that the whole the story was omitted. And mm. so that affected how the lectionary appeared, right? Because if you're going to put gospel stories in the order of which they're read, the story of the woman taken in adultery is dropping out because you have to put 752 to 812. So what then happens if you're trying to reconstruct a continuous text gospel and all you have is a lectionary? 
is you have to figure out where to stick this pieces that are from hmm. another day. Does that make sense? I think so. So it seems that you get this like this like rearrangement of stories. It seems to be the the best hypothesis Tommy Wasserman and I came up with of how we end up with um, the story of the woman taken in adultery in Luke. Maybe this is too technical. I'm sorry. You can edit it out if it is. But um, <laughs> there's a beautiful chart in Chris Keith's book on the story of the woman taken in adultery, where he shows all of the different places where the story of the woman taken in adultery appears in the manuscript tradition. And so I call that to everyone's attention. Like, that's a great book. Um, and you can see there that Luke is pretty unusual, but it does appear in this particular family of manuscripts. So just to back up a little bit then. So um, there there is evidence, isn't there? I mean, what, ki- or what kind of evidence is there that um, the woman taken in adultery isn't in every manuscript version of, of, of John? And we, we have some manuscripts mm-hmm. without, without that story, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we have, from the perspective of modern textual criticism, all of the most important manuscripts don't have it. Right. <laughs> right. So, so P66, which is a, um, a, the ancient papyrus copy of Luke and John, doesn't have it, although it's broken there, so it's hard to, it's not like a slam dunk. But um, Codex Sinaiticus, which is um, one of the most famous Pandect Bibles, probably um, fourth century gospel book doesn't have it in the gospel of john codex vaticanus another fourth century potentially fifth century um copy also very important um gospel pandect bible with gospel of john doesn't have it Hmm. the earliest manuscript to have the story is a manuscript called codex bezai which is um, at cambridge um that uh, manuscript d05 depending on how you number it and it has a story. It has this story in the Gospel of John. That's the earliest manuscript evidence. So all of the earlier ma- ma- hmm. pre fifth century evidence for John, whatever there is, doesn't have the story in the Gospel of John ah. or in the Gospels at all, for that matter. Oh right, so wow. it's nowhere at all. So so earliest in John is fifth century, and then what right. what sort of dating uh, are the other manuscripts or, or or the lectionaries that put it in Luke? Are they much later? They're, um, so the there, I believe they're all ninth and tenth century, or oh, primarily. Right. There might be some that are go later, but um, there's called Family One. And the theory among those who work on Family One is that the earliest ex- um, the exemplar that sort of the manuscript from which all these manuscripts ultimately derive is probably an eighth century manuscript that was in southern Italy um, at some point. Um, but that's a hypothetical. That's mm. the imaginary reconstructed idea of a manuscript from the eighth century. But the, I believe the evidence is. Certainly no earlier than 9th century. Um, I didn't check that, but I think most of the manuscripts in Family 1 are 10th century and 11th century, if I remember correctly. Hmm. All right. So so, so what, what you've kind of set up here is a bit of a, like a literary mystery, right? So how hmm. do we get this story in these later versions? Why was it sometimes included and, and sometimes wasn't included? Why was it not? I guess that's the big question that you're saying. Why was it not in the earliest, right? Why was it not in some hmm. of the earliest ones that we have so let's let's get to you know some of the theories like was do we think that this story was you know consciously you know suppressed or or kept out for some reason was there something about it that was dangerous to some to some of these people who were putting together these uh these these early manuscripts so that is certainly the longest running theory (laughs) of what happened um within the context of modern biblical scholarship and I began the project by thinking that, that must be right. Hmm. Um, there's a famous passage in Augustine when he's talking about um, whether people can get divorced 
um, if the woman, their wives commit adultery. And he says, no. And he goes into detail around this story and, and he blames husbands who don't want to stay married to their adulterous wives for deleting the story. <laughs> so it seems like a good idea. Like, oh, these, you know, rotten men, they deleted the story. And that's really the earliest example of someone trying, giving that suppression theory is what uh, Tommy and I call it in the book. Um, but actually, when given what we know about how books were copied, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, why? Okay, why, why is that? Why? <laughs> well, first of all, Augustine's writing in the 5th century, there's no way that husbands of who want to divorce their wives have an opportunity to edit the New Testament <laughs> text at that point. Like, there's just that's just not mm. even possible. Um, so Augustine is sort of saying that as a way of offering an explanation. And for why it's not there at the same time, blaming those who disagree with him for being so terrible that they would edit the gospels mm. to accuse someone of editing away um, text that they don't like out of a, of an authoritative book is a very mean thing to say. <laughs> like, <laughs> people in antiquity knew I mean, books are copied by hand, right? So everybody knew that if you wanted to mess with a book, by copying it incorrectly, you totally could. Mm. And so there were curses against people who would do such a thing. Oh. There were accusations against people that if you didn't like someone who was also like you, uh, you know, a scholar who worked with books, you could say about them, oh, look, they delete things, hmm. right? And so, for example, Origin of Alexandria makes this accusation against Jews um, mm. as, a, as an anti-Jewish argument. You know, oh, well, the Jews, you can't trust them. They delete things. Or, um, you know, famously, um, Tertullian makes this accusation against Marcion. He calls him, in fact, and Irenaeus calls him um, a clipped Jew or circumcised Jew for, for deleting things away from um, Paul's letters, which is like such a mean thing to say to Marcion because Marcion, you know, doesn't like Jews. So it's like, so in other words, what we're talking about is a game of trading insults around who would cut texts out. By and large, what what people in antiquity did because of they were afraid of things being cut cut out is they kept things. <laughs> so it was the opposite was reaction, right? Like, oh well, this is in this manuscript, but not in that manuscript. I better copy everything just in case, mm. so I'm not leaving anything out. So it's the opposite of suppression. Instead, mm -hmm. it's it's an addition. And so what we find as the gospel tradition goes on is that tradition as that the gospels become longer, wow. not shorter. Perhaps someone expelled the story from some early copy of the Gospel of John. There's no way to know that. You know, there's that's lost. Mm. But it seems unlikely, given the way that books were copied in antiquity, and given the reluctance that early Christian editors would have had to delete a story. Makes sense. So it's it's added from somewhere then. So 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 where does it where does it come from? If it only comes into the tradition quite late, then sort of somebody's composing it, or are they finding uh, an early story, or, or or what's your theories there? Well, this is a total theory. So I, this is a hypothesis that can never be proven. So I just want to say that. that, that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, because it, because there it just isn't evidence to solve this question. But based on the work that Tommy and I did on the transmission of the story, not only in manuscripts, but also among other writers who might allude to it or cite it, is that it seems that it was a story that was circulating in one form or another by the second 
century and certainly by the third century, I think. But that doesn't mean that people knew it in the Gospel of John. Hmm. It seems based on the way that the, that it enters the manuscript tradition, that it was potentially comes from the Latin West, but at a time when Christians are still speaking Greek. The majority of Christians in the Latin West who, you know, who were Christian were Greek speaking immigrants from somewhere else or their families were. So the gospels in um, places like Rome are tra being transmitted in Greek well into the end of the third century. And only in the fourth century do we start to find Latin becoming the language of the church of Rome. So it seems, given the way that the, that the story moves, that maybe in that early period, this is all just made up. I have no idea if this is true, but <laughs> I can make an argument that this makes the most sense, that somehow the story got into the Gospel of John in that setting, somewhere in Greek-speaking communities <laughs> that were in a Latin-dominant context. And then the story travels. Um, it travels. Didymus the Blind knows it. Didymus the Blind is a fourth century Christian um, in Alexandria, Egypt, and he knows it in certain gospels. What that means is a subject of serious debate. It could be that he knows it from a different gospel that's not the gospel of John. Um, that seems very likely. Um, but Jerome also mentions um, the church father Jerome, who translated the gospels into Latin formally in the fourth century, thanks to a request of Pope Damasus in Rome while he was still in Rome, included the story of the woman taken in adultery in his Latin translation of the Gospel of John, which is one of the reasons why the story of the woman taken in adultery is so present in the Latin West. Hmm. It's also present in translations that Jerome didn't do. So ones that were made sort of in a different, from a different way, either ad hoc or whatever, prior to Jerome. Um, but then when he, he travels, you know, Jerome, I'm just, yeah. now he's over here. <laughs> he's in Palestine. He's got and a time he's machine. Right, he, well, he moves, you know, so like, like, you know, I forget how much longer, but like a couple decades later, he's in Palestine, you know, living in a, a monastic life and still continuing to be a scholar among his books. And he writes a book against uh, another Christian he doesn't like named Pelagius. And in that book, he says, oh, in uh, many Greek and Latin manuscripts is the following story. So in other words, not in every manuscript is the following story. So does he only know Greek and Latin manuscripts with the story when he's hanging out in Rome and translating for Pope Damasus? I don't know. He doesn't tell you, but he definitely puts it into the what becomes his translation. Then he's over in Palestine. And now does he know that it's not in Greek, um, in Greek editions? You know, he... Maybe he's just learning that for the first time, or maybe he knew that all along. I don't know. But for whatever reason, he decides to mention this in this treatise that he writes, possibly because he wants to show how smart he is. One way to show you're a really good scholar, and frankly, this is true today. <laughs> if you want to show you're a really good scholar, you know, you show that you understand textual criticism, right? So what he does is, I know textual criticism. I know it's all in all, not in all the manuscripts. Nevertheless, it still condemns you, Pelagius, you big jerk. You know, so... <laughs> So, wow. So, okay. So it sounds like, like you said, it, it sort of it seems like there's this theory that it shows up in what you call the Latin West. So in, in, in Rome, it came through these mm -hmm. Greek speaking people and these kind of Greek texts. What, what is, what is one of the takeaways you know, from all of this research that you've done and, and probably just within your field in general, what, what was an important takeaway 
for our listeners about kind of the nature of this thing that we call the Bible. Like mm. we think of it as a fixed canon. We think of it as, yeah, as, yeah, yeah. as ancient and never changing. What What is the lesson we should be learning from this, this story, even in, in particular? Well, I'm going to borrow a term that David Brackey uses called scriptural practices. And it seems to me that one helpful way to think about what happens with gospel stories and, and other texts that become important in the Christian tradition is that those who revere these stories, who hold these books to be um, authoritative, engage in practices related to their scriptures. And those practices exceed whatever is in a book. And they always have, and I think they always will. Everything from, um, you know, the example of the Christmas pageants when I was growing up, that is a scriptural practice where, you know, we have the kids dress up as shepherds and magi at the same time, and we celebrate that at Christmas. Um, this has always been the case that different Christian communities have engaged in practices with those books and stories that they consider to be authoritative. And those practices always exceed whatever is in a book. Hmm. Um, and there's never been a moment that that's not the case. Um, and the story really shows that beautifully. One of the things that Tommy and I discovered um, together was that, that this story was not excluded from the Greek tradition. There's, if you go read older or even not even that old, something like, like Bruce Metzger's commentary, textual commentary on the New Testament, you'll find a, a statement about how the story was never really known in, the, in Greek um, because there's no citation of it between Didymus the Blind and Euthymius Zygabanus in the 12th century. And that's true. If you look to scholarly literature, you're not going to find a citation of the story in Greek literature between the 4th and the 12th century. But that doesn't mean the story wasn't there. And how do, and how do Tommy and I know that? Because the story gets featured in these little summaries, these little chapter summaries that were affixed to the pref as prefaces to, or sometimes as appendices to the gospels. And the story was added as a chapter um, in the system. So why do you need to have a chapter, you know, a list of a story that, you know, concerning the woman taken in adultery? If you don't want to read the story, if you don't care about the story, you mm -hmm. wouldn't put it there. And so we already find a running title head like that in an 8th century copy in, in Greek. So if we think about, if we extend our scope of vision so that we're not only thinking about what scholars say, but we're thinking about what people do. It seems like this story was very much a part of what people did, just as it remains today mm -hmm. to be a generative story about what people did or thought Jesus did, whatever the textual tradition may or may not have been. There's so many examples of this. Like sometimes I'll ask my students, you know, what's the name of Mary's mom? <laughs> and about like those who were raised Christian, Protestant or Catholic or Greek Orthodox, whatever, they all know Anna. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, how do you know that? It's not in the Gospels. Hmm. There's always traditions that exceed what's in gospel books that people know. Um, and up until the um, invention of modern textual criticism, really in the 19th century, this story was in the European biblical tradition as it was received because thanks, thank you, Jerome, you know, and also thank you, fifth century um, forms of the Roman stational liturgy, which put it, um, you know, on the, the third Saturday of Lent or whatever. So in other words, people... <laughs> didn't question whether this was in the Gospel of John until the modern period. Hmm. So if this, if this story is sort of floating around in, in the earliest period and then it gets sort of attached to, to John in a few manuscripts and occasionally to, to Luke, 
why why John? What what is it about John and, and why here? You know, why why this bit? You know, it could have been like you say, it, it could have been anywhere, really. It could have been tagged on the end or you know, I mean the is there a particular reason why it why it ends up here and why in John? Well, you should really have Chris Keith on this show because he has the best answer to that question, right? Well, I was so wondering his answer if you were gonna say something similar. <laughs> well, his theory is that the story um, becomes important and is attractive because it presents a literate Jesus, yeah. right? Because Jesus writes on the ground. And so um, among those who wanted Jesus to be fully literate, it it affirms that view of Jesus. And I think that's a very good hypothesis. I, I find that to be excellent. And I'm good, you know, I'm grateful to Chris Keith for presenting that hypothesis. Um, I think that's possible. Um, reason why I think that also the, the fact that, um, the story maybe was already well loved enough that it had to get put somewhere and why John, well, it fits really well. It's put in the, the, the temple, uh, discourse mm-hmm. in John, you know, it's, it's, it, and, um, that seems to be important. It fits well. It, it answers the question of G- whether Jesus has the right to judge. Um, I think it's Goodspeed who made that argument. And I think that's also a good reason to put it in John, you know, who can judge? Well, Jesus can. So who the heck are you? Um, and in the Codex Bezai version, where the men who are in the con- competition with Jesus are described as Jews, it really fits in John, mm-hmm. right? Because John has this um, strange... Um, controversies with with the jews whoever the heck they are all the time the jews what's mm-hmm. jews jesus is jewish so like what are you talking about but um so then it fits even better in john it also fits really well in john in the sense that jesus is the logos in john yeah and so if jesus is the logos who um actually writes who knows everything and all who's the pre-existent word who sustains the universe what a great story this is where jesus uh, writes on the ground and, and can see inside the consciences and the personhood of the men who bring the woman, which is in the Greek tradition is one of the additions to the story that the men provoked by their conscience, consciences begin to leave one by one, beginning with the eldest. And a final reason that I know Chris disagrees with me on this one, but whatever, I'm allowed to have my idea. <laughs> um, I also think that the story resonates very well with a story of Susanna, which was an incredibly popular story among Christians. This is a story where a beautiful young Judean woman, a matron, is set up um, to be falsely accused of adultery by some Judean elders. And the prophet Daniel um, is asked to weigh in on the question. And Daniel exposes the elders as being having set the woman up and or Susanna is her name and then then the elders themselves are stoned um in this story and this was an incredibly popular story and um it's also especially important and popular in rome which if tommy and i are right that might be the setting where the story ends up entering the gospel of john Mm -hmm. so potentially the story of Susanna. resonated enough with this story that it it gave Jesus the role of the prophet, right? He's like Daniel. He can do this thing that Daniel did. And interestingly, if there may be a reference to the story in a book called The Proto-Gospel of James, in which Mary herself and Joseph are brought before the priest, and she's given what's called the test of the bitter waters to see if she's committed adultery, and she passes it, and the the priests say, go and sin no more. Mm. The priest says that to Joseph and Mary. If that's an um, meant to be a literary allusion of some kind mm. to this story, then we have an innocent adulteress who's been falsely accused. Wow. wow. I mean, 
I think, because you're definitely, if you're the writer of the proto-gospel of James, like it's not in your imaginary that Mary could have ever actually had sex. Like mm-hmm. that's not a thing. The whole point of that book is to protect yeah, exactly. Mary's identity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even after the birth of Jesus, she's still a virgin. <laughs> exactly. Right. Which is one of my that. favorite stories. That's another one that I wish that my students remembered because that was like a hugely important story. Salome and the first miracle. The cave. And the, oh my gosh. It's such a good story. Everyone <laughs> should go weird. read it. It's just weird. Okay, if our listeners, so if our listeners uh, aren't familiar with that, go back to our, <laughs> our Christmas episodes about some of the... Uh, some of the nativity stories that that we don't know about. Yeah, the proto what what's the Latin or proto evangelium? Proto evangelium, exactly. Well said, Jinx Helen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love I love that you mentioned those those similarities and those echoes with the Susanna story. That I I forgot about that, but yeah, obviously there's there's some real crossover. Yeah. Well, all right, I I, I want to dig into some sort of related questions, and and if you don't know this type of history then you can say it, but the stoning part, like I I think everybody, Mm. and if you've seen life of Brian, I think that's the part where we get (laughs) most of our stoning references from, but was this, do we think this was a real thing? Obviously the, the old Testament has, you know, the punishment for adultery is you will be stoned. Do we have any proof that that was, was carried out on a regular basis or if at all? The quick answer is no. No. There's absolutely no evidence that anybody was ever stoned for adultery. Yeah. We, all we have is, like you said, in, the, in Leviticus, we have, or is it Deuteronomy, excuse me, that this law, right? And um, law is prescriptive, not descriptive. Mm. So, you know, that's one point. Like, I, before I was at Duke, I was at Boston University, and the speed limit on the Massachusetts Turnpike is um, 65 miles an hour. And I can guarantee you that nobody ever has driven on the Massachusetts Turnpike <laughs> at 65 miles per hour. Everyone goes at least 70. Like that's just not even possible. If you went 65, somebody would rear end. I mean, you from you. behind, you know, like, so, so that's just not a thing. Like, so, so my point is, is that what is said in law and what is done or don't necessarily match. And then the other point that's important is that at the point in which the story is being told, the, um, you know, Jewish leaders who, you know, might have some kind of um, legal um, rights within their own communities. They did. I mean, Romans didn't impose Roman law on non-Roman citizens. Nevertheless, um, Jews, wherever they were living under Roman rule, didn't have the right of capital punishment anyway. Mm. They, mm. So they couldn't have stoned anyone if they'd wanted to. Mm. I don't, People are t- can be so terrible. I don't underestimate the possibility of you know ter- terrible people doing terrible things like stoning. I mean, maybe that happened. There's no evidence of it, and it was illegal for anyone to do it hmm. during the Roman period. Stoning was not a Roman punishment, and Romans were the only one who could kill people. And Romans were really good at killing people. I mean, <laughs> hence we have a crucified Jesus. It's not a problem. Like we know they did engage in capital punishment. They chopped off the heads of Roman citizens. They, you know, they burned people alive. They, you know, whatever. We don't have to go into that, that depressing topic. Topic. Another important point is that in terms of rabbinic literature, um, it's the rabbis also didn't recommend stoning. Hmm. Um, in rabbinic literature, again, prescriptive, not descriptive. Strangling. It's like, well, if you're going to do something, strangling. Oh. Okay. <laughs> now let's go to what Roman law says, because adultery was, um, if you were a, a Roman citizen woman and you were caught committing adultery by your father, 
in the very act, your father could kill you. That was Augusta, uh, the Emperor Augustus had that law that uh, it's called the Augustan marriage legislation. And as a piece of that law, he made that possible. You could kill your daughter if you caught her in the act of adultery. Um, How often would that happen? I don't know. Because it is very specific. Like you have to be caught in the act. It's not like you heard from somebody like, yeah. Exactly. You had to actually catch the woman. And it's the same if you think in the Susanna story, um, the, the setup there is that the um, elders say that they caught Susanna in the act of adultery mm. and they drag mm. Susanna in front, right? So there's so, no doubt. So there's no doubt. So you have so you have to catch the person, you know, in the very act. Let's take a step back from the law and think about what the implications of these laws are. If you were a free woman, whatever your status, whether you're a Judean free woman, you're, you know, you live in Alexandria, you're an Alexandrian free woman, you're a Roman free woman. Adultery was heavily centered for women. Hmm. Um, free women were the, were property of their, of their fathers until they were the property of their husbands and free women should not be having babies with other people, you know, other men. This is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> If you're a man, a free man in any of these settings, legally, there's no, there's no censure for you. You can commit adultery. By committing adultery, I mean, you have sexual access to slaves if you're wealthy mm-hmm. enough to have enslaved persons in your household. You have sexual access to um, prostitutes if you want. Prostitution was legal and taxed in the Roman world. Um, and adultery for men was censured um, for free men was censured morally, like you'll read Greek and Roman moralists as well as Christians who are like, don't mention commit adultery. But in terms of the law, no. I don't know if that really answers the question, but I think what it does do is highlight the um, the different theories of what sexual um, morality might be is very much tied to not only gender, but also status. Mm. Um, and that... Um, not everyone had access to the appearance of sexual morality, whatever their sexual behavior was. Mm. And also that these across the board, women were generally considered to be the property of men. Mm. Well, is that, does that, was that one of the theories or is that still one of the theories that people throw around as to why maybe the story was suppressed was there is there a theory that man okay well maybe jesus went one step too far by forgiving an adulteress because isn't that the worst possible thing do you know what's so weird is that nobody in antiquity said that Mm. i mean nobody in the medieval period i should say because they're really i mean late antiquity as well in fact didymus the blind who's our first you know christian scholar to explicitly cite this story uses uses it as an example to shame bishops who aren't forgiving Mm. In other words, in the imaginary version, as, as Didymus tells the story, the bishops are supposed to be like Jesus, and they're supposed to forgive. And there's a similar um, message that's taken from the story in another book called the um, Didascalia Apostolorum, which is a third century book of Christian instruction, in which um, the message taken from the story is that we ought to be exceptionally merciful, not don't show mercy, you know, this is the step too far. Sure. And even Augustine, who's, we can thank Augustine for being the first one to argue that, you know, 
terrible husbands suppress the story. Even Augustine doesn't take that meaning from a story, right? Even Augustine's like, those husbands are jerks for thinking that Jesus is incredibly merciful. And so the tradition of Jesus's mercy and this, this story being um, exemplary on that point is the main message that gets taken um, forward as people interpret the story. Um, in the modern period, biblical scholars came up with that theory. Mm. Oh, well, it must have been suppressed because, for example, Origin of Alexandria was really strict about sexual morality, which is true, you know? <laughs> um, and he must have, you know, somehow not liked this story and mm. gotten rid of it. I don't know whether Origin knew the story or not. Tommy and I have a section in the book where we like weigh the possibility one way or the other, but we don't know. Um, but nevertheless, people like Origin of Alexandria and even Tertullian, who is another famous you know, don't have sex sort of Christian writer, um, they don't have problems citing other examples of Jesus's interaction with um, sinning, you know, mm. sexually sinning women. So Rahab, who is, you know, the, the prostitute um, who lets the um, spies in um, enter Canaan in the story of Joshua, you know, and she's a huge um, moral exemplar among these writers. Um, the, the statement in the Gospel of Matthew where the tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of heaven before the scribes and the Pharisees. Mm. This saying gets lifted up by all of the, these very strict sexually ascetic Christian writers. The tendency is not to suppress the story that, that, that you know, even with um, sexually sinning women, but rather to tell the story as a way of either highlighting Jesus's mercy, you know, highlighting Jesus's mercy or and or suggesting how much of a transformation takes place if you become a person who follows Christ, which works with this story, too. Is, is there any chance you think that this is a genuine historical story from the time of Jesus or or are we not in a position to be able to? I mean, there's big questions over every story to do with Jesus, but I think particularly this one, given that it's floated about and 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 those connections you found with Susanna, where 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 would you put it on the scale of likely historicity? I think it's as likely as any other gospel story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, there was a bit, there was an interesting moment after this in, in among um, modern biblical scholars, where after it was taken out of the Gospel of John as an original piece of the Gospel of John under the influence of modern New Testament textual criticism as it emerged, there was a swing backwards that happened in like immediately in the aftermath of World War II, where, where biblical scholars like, um, um, John Darrett and Raymond Brown were arguing it's more likely to be true because it was an oral story mm. that entered the gospel. So that was another argument that was made. I don't pretend to be a historical Jesus scholar, and I would rather remain open about whether or not this story has a historical resonance. I would like to believe that Jesus was the kind of person who encountered women as full members of the community and invited them to be full members of the community, whatever others were saying about them, and saw their goodness and loveliness and value, irrespective of 
what was accusations lodged against them mm. and that that Jesus interacted with those women in that way. That's the Jesus I would like mm. to be historical. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so too. And if, if, if there's any level of sort of historical you know, reality to this. You can then start to speculate on the woman herself. You know, was she really an adulterer? Was, it, 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 there's so much of this sort of slurring women. You know, women are always sinners. Um, and maybe she wasn't in a position to be married. Maybe she was living with somebody. You know, there's all kinds of, there's sort of a spectrum of, of positions she might have had with respect to the man, um, the man who somehow isn't there. That um, you know, you can kind of start to speculate about and um, and think about this woman as a real person. But if if it's a later mm -hmm. story, just just put together to illustrate Jesus's mercy, then you know, it somehow she seems like she's sort of even more, I think, a, a shadowy character. I don't know. Is, do, do, do you see what I? Mean? I love that point so much, Helen. I'm, I'm like dying. To, I almost made my, interrupted you because I was so excited about what you were just saying. <laughs> so yes, and when you think about all of this, the the ink that has been spilled on what Jesus wrote on the ground, mm. you know, there's been so many people who've speculated about what that was. It's about time for you, Helen, to write a story. <laughs> you know, to write a version like, well, who is this woman? Like, we could what's actually say backstory? something about that. <laughs> yeah, what's her backstory? Why hasn't anyone asked that question? You know, that that's a really good question because the whole scenario is wrong. You know, mm -hmm. where's her the man mm -hmm. she supposedly was caught with? What given what we've just described around the laws around adultery, wherever this story is being told, who is this woman? And why isn't anyone asking her what her opinion is and mm -hmm. what her experience is? And I would like to imagine a Jesus who would have asked her that question and didn't just like after he said, go and sin no more. She was like, well, actually, Jesus, I have some things I'd like to <laughs> yeah. say. Is this not sin? <laughs> exactly. Like, things? do you understand? Like, this is what my actual husband is. Or, this yeah. is why I'm not actually married. Or, this is why father did to me. Like, come on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, before before we let you go, we, we do have an offer for you. And, and, and I want you to think about this seriously. Not a lot of people know this. We have we have a functioning time machine that we you know the podcast <laughs> is called Biblical Time Machine. We like to joke that it's just a metaphor. No, we do have an actual time machine. So <laughs> what we would like to know is if if we're going to give you an opportunity to use a time machine and it is very expensive. It costs, you know, I don't want to even get into it. Where would you want to go? Is there a particular place and a time that you would want to go to see for yourself? what was actually going on in, in biblical times. Wow. I wish yeah. I had known about this question in advance. I'm sorry. We should have told you. <laughs> All right. I want to be at the empty tomb. Oh. I want to be hanging out with the women at the empty tomb. I want to meet that um, angel. If there, mm. you know, there's an angel there. I want to, I want to understand with them what that event of coming to the, perception that Jesus has risen from the dead was like mm. and um, how that changed them. And then I want to run with them to the dis male disciples and have them dismiss me with the knowledge I have now. So I'd be like, dudes, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, that's a great answer. <laughs> well, Jennifer, thank you so much. I, I hope, I hope our listeners walk away with an appreciation of, of like you said, the, the engagement of people with the text and, and just how the history of these texts is about communities and, and, and people wanting, you know, 
kind of holding on to the stories that they like and, and making sure that they get in there and, and sometimes they're not in there. But, you know, what we have now is a product of, of centuries of this interaction with these all these different texts, all these different versions. And it doesn't make the story any less powerful, but it does add a lot of, you know, depth and, and complexity to its history. But thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Helen. Thank you to our listeners. And we will see you on the next episode of Biblical Time Machine. Bye. Bye.